Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Pamela E. Alexander is a part of Detroit's LGBTQ history. She has been active in the Metro Detroit community for years having served on the boards of directors of several organizations. She's a gold star mother, having lost her son while he was serving in a time of conflict. The retired deputy director of the Ruth Ellis Center was instrumental in the founding and development of the Kofi House Center for Lesbian and Queer Women and Girls. Her love of Black, women's, and LGBTQ history inspired her research in the life and legacy of Polly Murray. The Reverend Dr. Polly Murray was an activist for American civil rights and women's rights. She was a lawyer, poet, author, and the first African-American woman Episcopalian priest. Anna Pauline Polly Murray was born in Baltimore, Maryland. She was orphaned when young and raised mostly by her maternal grandparents in Durham, North Carolina. In 1940, Murray sat in the whites-only section on a Virginia bus and was arrested for violating state segregation laws. She enrolled in the law school at Howard University, where she also became aware of sexism. She called it Jane Crow. As a lawyer, Murray argued for civil rights and women's rights. Thurgood Marshall called Murray's 1950 book, State's Laws on Race and Color, the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. In 1966, she was a co-founder of a national organization of women. Ruth Bader Ginsburg named Murray as a co-author of a brief on the 1971 case, Reed v. Reed. She became an ordained priest in 1977 among the first generation of women's priests. In addition to her legal and advocacy work, Polly published two well-reviewed autobiographies and a volume of poetry. Pamela, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown and leading our conversation on the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. 
Are you staying warm this cold day? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, mm-hmm. I am. It snowed a little bit more, but, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just um, trying to stay warm and stay out of the elements. Mm-hmm. Well, Pam, I am particularly pleased and honored to have you help us talk about another icon and black history, uh, because in some ways, to me, um, you are our local icon. I mean, you know, not only local, I mean, I mean, you've done things like, you know, you've served on several boards, you're an amazing mother, um, you are a gold star mother, you were the deputy director at Ruth Ellis Center and helped make the Center for Lesbian and Queer Women and Girls come to come to fruition. You know, you took it from that ideal um, to a reality where now we have this place to do it. I know that, that um, you are now retired, but um, as you look back, and I know that you're not done with the many things that you're going to do, what would you want your legacy to be? What would you want if people were putting together uh, a story about black women and black LGBT community for a historical perspective, what would you want them to know about you? Okay. Um, I think that I would want them to think of me as being determined, um, that mm. I, when I believe in something, you know, that, um, that I would uh, work diligently to see it through. Um, I'd certainly see myself as an activist, so um, I would like to be known as a person who would lend a voice uh, to speak on behalf of others who may not have had the opportunity to uh, speak out for themselves, and that um, I would use every resource in the community (laughs) to get things done. And I do believe there's so much to be done, but I would want folks to think of me as someone who tried to get things done. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that one of one of the more recent things that you did was the Center for Lesbian and Queer Women and Girls. You were the driving force behind that. Um, what lit that fire in your belly to make this come true? Because... Queer women um, just simply did not have a place, a space, and um, a, a safe space. And I, 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 I would think about the young people who uh, were just out there going to the clubs and you know other places that might not have been so safe. Um, and I thought about the resources that were available at the Rivella Center. And I thought, well, why not? You know, let's make room for queer uh, women um, and, and, and support them the way um, we have supported um, others in the community. And when I say others, I'm talking about the, the you know, the alphabet. You know, I, I think that there's, there's space for everyone. 
at the Rubella Center. It just had not been defined and targeted the way I thought it needed to be. And so um, when a building came available, I just kind of pursued it with the boss and, you know, with a few challenges. But at the end, it was a well-thought-out plan um, that was created um, to be able to make a safe space for queer women. Mm. You know, I think that we are going into this time now where you're seeing women, particularly women of color, you know, Mm -hmm. we're just everywhere. I mean, you go from Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, when you look in both of the staffs, uh, and many members in their staffs of uh, the administration are openly gay. They're lesbians, Mm -hmm. and you know. But I know that we've been there. I talk to people, I mean, and I can tell you, as late as last year, being on a Zoom call with people who were just seeing Ruth Ellis's story and going like, wow, I didn't know about her. Why? You know, and I think that that won't be the case moving forward, but we've been here. Why Mm -hmm. don't you feel that our stories have been made as important or told as they should be? Well, um, I I think it starts with the person, the individual, uh, myself, you. Uh, We need to tell our stories. We need to tell them all the time, um, even when folks don't want to listen. So I think it starts with the individual. I also think that it starts, it also continues with uh, knowing that there are people that just simply don't want your story told. They still believe that we don't exist or we may take something away from them, uh, quote unquote, if, 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 if there are monies to be given out into the community by funders that for some reason or another, you know, the money may not be available to them if they give it to, you know, black gay women. Uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's, I think there's a, 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 a piece to it that identifies with more so with, you know, making room, making space, believing that we do exist and, um, you know, and that we are entitled, just like everyone else is, to be a part of the community. And we need to continue to rise up and, and let people know that we are here and we're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, that leads us into what you're going to tell us about today. And... Um, yeah. I first learned about uh, Dr. Polly Murray from someone who lives in Durham, Durham, North Carolina. But in going mm-hmm. back and preparing for this, I mean, like, I've, I've, I was blown away by all that she did. And many of the articles and the interviews said, you know, this is one of the, 
you know, the biggest people of our of this century, and how come more people don't know about them? How did you find out about Pauli Murray? Okay. I bought a book, and in this book, it's titled, uh, it's titled uh, Firebrand and the First Lady. I've always, uh, I'm a history person, so I like to read about the Roosevelt's, right, uh, President uh-huh. and his wife. And, and I, I noticed that there were a couple of pictures that was in this book or in an article that I had seen about the book. And it appeared to have been a either a biracial woman or um, or black woman who uh, seemed to have been in her close circle. And so I was just curious about who this person was. And as I began to read a little bit more, I discovered that it was Polly Murray. And this was, you know, several years ago, many years ago. And with that being said. That's when I started just, you know, reading about Dr. Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray. I just, how could, how could we not know? How did I not know about a person who laid the foundation for such a legacy related to the civil rights movement and the women's movement and, and in my opinion, the queer movement? in her own way, and and yet, um, you know, I had started working at the Rufella Center, and I just happened to have a conversation with a couple of directors. Do you, do you guys, have you guys ever heard of Polly Murray? And they said no, and I said, so you might want to read about her, because I know we have Rufella, but there were folks out there doing this kind of work and have laid the foundation for um, significant, uh, you know, civil rights uh, laws, and and Polly Murray was one of them. So I started talking more about Polly Murray at the Ruth Ellis Center every opportunity I could get with young people and certainly once the, the, uh, um, the lesbian center opened up, I, you know, I just made this a part of the conversation to educate people about her. Yeah. Now, you know, it's interesting because everyone knows uh, about, talks about Eleanor Roosevelt. I read a story mm-hmm. about her and her long-term on-off, behind-the-scenes partner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's like, wow. And, and then later on, going back and reading, like, well, Polly Murray had been right in that circle. And, mm-hmm. again, you know, like you said, here is this, you looked at it and you saw this picture, and like, okay, now this is somebody who looks like me, you know, right. who looks like me and who's, you know, and is, is closeted. Well, it was the worst-kept secret about Eleanor Roosevelt, but I imagine to that also in that inner circle was this Pauli Murray was like huge, you know, uh, was like huge, like, well, we're really going to keep this down. And books, the fact that you found this book to start talking about Pauli Murray. I mean, like you said, like she had been involved in so many things Mm -hmm. that I've been blown away each time as I stop 
and and read something else about it. I go like, oh my god, um, this woman was just like the original badass. Yeah. Um, yes. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to really get into a little bit about Polly Murray. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I am talking with a the legendary Pamela Alexander about <laughs> another another icon in our community, Pauline Murray. And um, Annie Pauline Murray, I mean, she wasn't born in Durham, but that's where she ended up. I mean, she was involved in so many things. She was a civil rights activist a woman's right activist, she was a lawyer, a poet, an author, and an Episcopal priest. What? Yes. Really, you know, and, and, and each one, I mean, she was formidable. I mean, you know, the people who she was behind, when you talk about law, you talk about her and Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, people who we all know about. And then they are in, in, the, in the background is Polly Murray. What was that first thread in her remarkable tapestry of life that you became aware of? Well, for me, I think that what basically drew me to Polly was the fact that she was so accomplished, okay, and that there were things that she struggled with. Um, as a biracial uh, kid, young person, a child growing up in the South that um, where the Jim Crow laws existed and it was really clearly defined what she could and could not do based on her race. Um, She understood those rules and she was very defiant toward those rules. Um, you know, she, she lost her, her, her mother at a very young age, at the age of three or four, I believe. And, um, and her father, who was educated, he was a teacher, and I think also became a principal. Her mother was a nurse, by the way. Uh, but when her mother died when she was about three or four years old, from a uh, brain uh, aneurysm, her father became the primary caretaker, of course. Um, There were five other siblings, and um, I believe Polly was the fourth child 
Her father, of course, um, developed deep depression and um, and suffered from depression pretty much for the rest of his life until he was placed in a in a sanitarium. And at that time, um, the children were kind of divvied up, and and she had to live with her um, aunt Pauline in um, Durham, North Carolina. It was at that time that um, that separation from her siblings, losing both her parents, and her father was later killed. He was murdered at a mental institution um, by the time I think she was six or seven years of age. So, you know, growing up in a household where there were uh, adults who were all educated, her, her grandparents because she went to go live with her grandparents and her aunts. And it was her aunt Pauline who became her primary caretaker at that point in time um, in growing up in Durham. And, and she loved her aunt, and, and her aunt loved her very much so. She allowed um, Pauline to express herself and to, to grow up in a household where she wasn't shunned because she was a child. Adults listened to children in that particular household, so she was pretty outspoken. And and of course, um, in that background of the family, it was pretty mixed race because um, Polly certainly looked uh, biracial. And growing up in the Deep South, that was not necessarily something that. Uh, was kind to her because for white people, she wasn't white enough, and for black people, she wasn't dark enough. So she got teased mm. and picked at a lot. Um, so that caused a lot of struggle for her as well. But overall, I think for me, um, what stood out for me when it, when, regarding Pauly's idea that um, she, she, there was something about the system in which she was living that for her, it just didn't seem right that black people were second-class citizens. And, and in a, her own way, she fought against that from the very beginning of her, um, you know, realizing that she was looked upon as being second-class. And Well, you know... Um, yeah, and talking about that, you know, we all talk about, you know, intersectionality now. Mm-hmm. When she wrote Jane Crow, I mean, she mm-hmm. was right on. You know, she, mm-hmm. she, like you said, she wasn't, you know, white enough to be white, black enough to be black. She was female, trying to go into institutions that were primarily male, and she, I mean, like she put her finger right on there, Jane Crow. Mm-hmm. That's us, you know. I mean, that's what many we women in general, but particularly black women, we we know that all too well. Absolutely, and 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 trust me, it's been used against us <laughs> quite well, you know, uh-huh. throughout time. And that was one of the things that not only did she struggle with that. You know, as far as accepting that as part of her her intersectionality, and see, that's a term we, as you said, we use today. That term was not available to her, and that's the reasons why 
in her heart and soul that it was clear that it, if, if it was Jim Crow because of the color of her skin, her race, then the only thing that would make sense is Jane Crow because she was discriminated against because of her gender, her sex. And so there were places that um, she wasn't supposed to go, um, and she learned early on in life that um, there, were, there were institutions that kept her out of places, like going to school or going to universities at certain areas of the country, uh, certain places that she could not go because, and I'll give you an example, I think her, the school that she loved the most, the, the one that she just thought once she finished high school, um, that she would be able to attend, which was Columbia University, but she was not able to attend um, Columbia um, because she was a woman. She was uh-huh. not able to attend uh, the University of North Carolina because she was black. And, uh-huh. and these instances really um, played a significant role and how she saw the world, and that, you know, it was they, they left scars on her in the sense that she fought it at every level, but it was painful for her to be rejected because of her race and because of her, her gender, her sex. Wow. You know, and it, it's interesting that, you know, she wrote on these that influenced many people moving forward, like Thurgood Marshall, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they got these positions, notoriety, and, but, you know, Polly was, was there. You can find her, her writings, but, you know, you think, people immediately go, if you say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they immediately know where to go. You know, if you say Thurgood Marshall, they immediately know where to go. She was instrumental, and the National Organization of Women, but then what you would think, you know, should have been like right working with her, but then she left. How did that happen? She left because she left the legal scene because she lost the love of her life. Mm. Okay. And and that's the part of the story that um, most people probably don't know about either. They know that she left the legal field and she, um, because she was always a very uh, faith-based person. She always was strong in her faith. Um, But it even became even more important to her when she met um, a a woman who, um, and they became involved. They were in a relationship, long-term relationship. And um, and then um, this person, I believe her name was Renee, um, she passed away in 1973. And it was at that time that she made the decision to, to leave um, the legal field and she um, decided to enroll in a seminary and, and at the uh, Episcopal Church and she became an ordained priest. Because for her, everything that she had experienced in life, she encompassed everything. And and with that being said, 
you know, this this was the last piece for her, you know, mm-hmm. um, to to use everything that she had ever done, everything that she had ever experienced, every accomplishment, every challenge, to to go out into the world and to help others with all that she had become. She just didn't, you know, continue to practice law or, you know, to do these things day to day. She decided to do something even bigger uh, with her life, and that was through her faith. Now, you know, before she left, though, which the other thing that I found was really interesting was that she was the first black deputy attorney general in California. And, okay, we all talk about our vice president, Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. as being mm-hmm. the, uh, the attorney general of California. Would there have been a space for Kamala Harris had there not been a Polly Murray? You know, um, probably not, because Polly was absolutely the first. And, and there's a reason why she was the first, okay? Uh, it was during that time. Uh, the U.S. was at war, and a lot of, you know, folks had been drafted. You know, they were in Europe fighting the war. And when this position uh, became available, um, she decided to apply. And in doing so, she was the most qualified Mm. to get the job. You know, she was the most qualified out of all of the uh, candidates um, that they had interviewed, and with their, uh, you know, legal experience, uh, she was the most qualified, and they selected her. And without a doubt, they, they selected one of the best, the best. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was in that position, and, um, and she was over housing, and I believe it was housing and employment, um, and, and yet, um, she, in, this, in this role, um, you would probably think she was more responsible for making sure that the laws were, you know, instituted based on, you know, the, 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 the system that they had. But in fact, a big part of her responsibility was training and educating and, and, and really convincing uh, white people, okay, that um, about the black community and that the black community um, had its challenges. So basically she was educating white people about the black community through this role as the uh, um, deputy uh, director, or rather deputy uh, attorney general. Mm -hmm. And she did it well. However, after the war was open, um, uh, ended rather, um, she, um, I guess, folks started returning back home, and so they didn't renew her contract. But in 1946, so that happened in 1945. In 1946, she was recognized by the National Council of Negro Women as well as the Mademoiselle Magazine as one of the uh, most, uh, she was listed. She was recognized as one of the most recognized women of, of, of the, you know, of the country as it related to, um, like, being woman of the year. Um, uh-huh. And so in that capacity, she had really began to make a name for herself 
um, when it when it when when it was related to women um, looking to other women to acknowledge, you know, the gifts, skills, and talents that they had. She was one that was being uplifted for the accomplishments right. that she had had uh, you know had completed up until that point in time in her life. But it was wow. in 1947. 1947 that really put her on the map because that's when she wrote the book State Laws, Race, and Color. And um, after a few years working on that, I think it was actually, she started working on it in 1947 and she published the book, uh, published the book in 1950. And uh, Thurgood Marshall referred to that book as the Bible. Um, as far as race relations and looking at how states um, and, you know, navigated and had, you know, Jim Crow laws and so forth, it was the Bible to race relationships in the United States. Now, you said that she had been in a, a relationship with a woman. We know that she was lesbian. She wrote this book, which you're calling, like, the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. Was her mm-hmm. voice silent? much like Bayard Reston's was because of her sexuality, or was it a combination of her sexuality and gender? Her, her private, and, and this is an area that she was not open about, and, um, and this was an area that gave her a great deal of struggle um, because um, she... She was attracted to women, and just based on the framework of how she was raised, um, and, and, and she did a lot of research because she would have bouts with depression, and she did, uh, and she did experience, she had several episodes of uh, being hospitalized in a mental institution, institution because of her depression. And she also um, off and on would, would abuse alcohol because of her struggle. Um, and, and so this is what is written about her, but this is not what she wrote about herself. And, and I want to make the distinction between what people learned about her and, um, and what she wrote, like, in her own autobiography. Um, but her identity was was really foremost, I think, um, not being just, you know, knowing, trying to figure out exactly how she would sit um, in um, society, you know. And she um, did reach out to therapists, and, and there were doctors that she did see, um, regarding, I guess, the, um, the idea of was there a male inside of her? These were the uh, questions that, I guess, through documentation. And when I say that she did not write for the public to see, these were notes that she made in her private writings. And so these private writings that she, because she, whatever she wrote, she saved. Okay. So as, as time went on and she passed away and things started being disclosed, there are a lot of assumptions that are made about 
uh, Pauli Murray. And if you um, even acknowledge how I am referring to her uh, and with pronouns and pronouns, I am referencing her as her, she. And the reasons why I, I do that is because that's how she referred to herself, okay, uh, in this female pronoun um, stance. But there are those who, who write about her that refer to her in male pronouns. And, yeah. and because this was the history at that time and because of what she had to work with, because, um, you know, the term transgender was not, did not exist. Intersectionality did not exist. Um, let's see what else. Um, even taking uh, hormone therapy, it was available uh, during, um, starting around the 1920s and 30s, but not available to someone like her. Okay, and the fact that um, because she she did she did reach out to to doctors to see uh, if she could have you know surgery, um, but you know after being examined there you know what what she perceived to have been the what she was experiencing. Um, was was not necessarily there was no language that was available at that time um, for her to have the kind of conversation that I'm having right now um, to you know to share this with you. It just wasn't available. So anyone showing up at a doctor's office with that kind of conversation, they just shipped off to a mental institution. Okay, and so like I said. She didn't write about her uh, identity. Others have written about her identity, and they've made assumptions about her identity. Uh, and I leave it open um, because that's her story, her history. Um, and so, um, but in, in today's terms, uh, it is most likely that she would identify as transgender. If, mm -hmm. if not transgender, then non-conforming. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, like, um, like you said, how she, there was no shortage of hearing what Polly Murray had to say, particularly about mm -hmm. Polly Murray. I mean, one of the things mm -hmm. I know that at the Polly Murray Center in Durham, they said was because, in fact, they said, you know, some would say she was a pack rat, but she kept everything. So as far as going back to finding pictures and what she had to write, you know, and, and how she talked about herself, it was often, you know, easy for them to find. And mm -hmm. I agree with you. What, what you find is in her it's a different time. In her writing, mm -hmm. she used she, but many took the as a sign when she changed her name from Anna Pauline to Polly, and that she had pictures where she used terms like the dude, the crusader, the imp, that, and because she 
was looking, including uh, thinking about hormone therapy, which was the last time, that they would use, they, some people I've heard use they and them, or, you know, I think now I think that she would be considering herself gender non-conforming. And perhaps mm-hmm. even then she did, but we didn't have that language back then, back in the day when she was coming up. Mm-hmm. That is correct, and so mm-hmm. I, I and so I don't take it upon myself to apply what's today, twenty twenty one, to a time, you know, almost a hundred years ago, at least eighty years ago. What I do know is that she was attracted to women. I do know that she preferred male clothing. Mm-hmm. I do know that. She had at least uh, two women that she uh, loved, and one was in a long-term relationship. And I also discovered she was married at one time to a man for Uh a short period of time. And and Uh so... um, And so with, you know, all... And she speaks about the marriage... Um, to the man's name is Billy, I believe, in her autobiography. And it was annulled. Uh, it was only for a short, I think it happened, and uh, it, only, it was just for a few months. And, um, but, you know, I, I think just the idea that she was, ex- I won't even say that she was exploring her, um, her identity, I believe she understood who she was, but the times wasn't there. It, 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 you know, the period of time just simply was not there. For example, the first woman that um, she had uh, was considered a companion. Um, this was after, I believe, she had finished um, Hunter College, and this would have been around 1933, which was you know, real right, you know, right there at the time of the Great Depression. And so there wasn't a lot of jobs. And so her and this person kind of hooked up together and they um, did travel to what was then at that time called the Conservation, um, uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, which is what the president at that time, Roosevelt, had created for people who were unemployed. So they worked there together, and they became very close, very good friends. And they also, and she dressed like the boy, and she dressed like the girl. And so Uh it was during that that time period that she, based on, you know, her personal writings, that uh, she wanted them to be together in a relationship and that she would be the man. And this woman would, of course, be her woman. But the woman was frightened of that framework, so she left. She left uh, Polly, and Polly was devastated by that, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so she she talks about that, you know, in great deal about, uh, you know, getting into what that did to her, you know, that there was one person that connected to her, you know out of all the human beings that existed during that time, at least one person understood who she was and, 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 but wasn't able to stay in her life. 
And so, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and it, it's sort of like how she stood in her truth. Because I know, like, even though, like, she was very involved in the civil rights movement, she stood and told them, you know, that she was bothered by the fact that women, there were all these, these black men who were taking the leadership role and women were pushed to the back. She was involved with now. And although they were working for women, they weren't appropriately addressing the issues of black women and working class women. And it so seems like she would put herself there, but then when she saw that these movements weren't addressing the bigger picture, she moved on because she got the bigger picture even when others didn't. Do you think that came from growing up who she was? Yeah, yeah, and you know what, and I also believe that I I will give uh, homage to her aunt for really, really building that mechanism inside of Polly to to, to really dig deep and and to understand. It's okay for you to be who you are. Her aunt... You know, because her aunt, when she went to go live with her aunt, by the time she was four or five years old, of course, Polly preferred wearing boy clothes and stuff like that. And aunt said, okay, this is who you are, and I love you for who you are. And she's only like four or five years of age, right? Uh She said, but on Sunday, you got to wear a dress because we're going to church. And that was the agreement that they made. And with that agreement... Um, she never had any other issues with, you know, her aunt not um, uh, affirming who she was. And did her aunt know that she was boyish or boy, you know, tomboy? Or she just, it wasn't so much, she accepted her. So the aunt, her aunt truly, truly accepted her for who she was. And, 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 and that was really, really important to Polly, I believe that it was her aunt that gave her that strength to believe in herself. Mm-hmm. But it didn't you know, she, the world that existed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the first a big part of her life was involved in the law. And I know that many African Americans, and I have talked to people from all walks of life, and I mean, I often think back, you know, to with Jimmy Boggs, and he would talk about all the atrocities that had happened in America, but how he still believed, in part, that what was said in that core, what the founders had put in that imperfect document coming from these imperfect people who didn't even think of us, you know, he believed in that promise of America. And it seems like Pauly examined the law and poked holes in the law and showed how it could be better. I mean, she did an awful lot of writing on that to the part where people who we hold up as, you know, these people who were going to make it, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Thurgood Marshall, these people who we hold up as these great legal minds. Well, Polly in many ways was an even bigger, you know, legal mind because of what she saw and what she studied. 
but they didn't make it easy for her to do it, but she still pursued. Yeah, they didn't make it easy. And, 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 and she, and, and in my opinion, she took the simplest pathway. For example, the 13th and the 14th Constitution, uh, uh, the, the 13th and 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Um, it was still a case, and I'm sure you heard of it, Plessy versus uh, Ferguson that uh-huh. dealt with discrimination. And, and when she was in law school at Howard University, and I'm sure you've come across the information related to this story because they also made a movie about it. And I think uh-huh. Bozeman was the good marshal in this movie. Um, and, and so uh, Plessy versus Ferguson was a case as it related to the idea that separate but equal goes against the 13th and 14th Amendment of the Constitution. She clearly argued that in her legal thesis in her last year of school, law school at Howard University. Her classmates, who were all male and, of course, black, and her professor laughed at her about it, okay, because they, you know, this professor said, well, you know, that is a, false argument, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and and, but she made a bet with him. She said to him, in 10 years, Plessy versus Ferguson will be overturned. And this happened in 1944. Uh-huh. And, 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 and so the idea that separate but equal goes against the grain of the 13th, the, the writing of the 13th and 14th Amendment to the Constitution. But they couldn't see that. And, of course, the rest of the world didn't see it either. But she did. Okay. So when uh, Thurgood Marshall was preparing to go to the Supreme Court uh, with Board versus the Board of, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, this professor, his name was Robinson, I think, Spotswood or Spotsweed, Robinson was his name, which was her previous professor, literally because they didn't really have a real clear pathway as to how they were going to win this case at the Supreme Court, how they were going to argue this case at the Supreme Court. He went back into his files and pulled out her legal thesis showed it to uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall, and that was the foundation that they used, the framework to arguing this case in front, of, in front of the Supreme Court justice. And guess what? The Supreme Court aligned itself with Pauli and, and, and mm. pointed out, you're absolutely right. The states do not have jurisdiction that's at the federal level, so therefore... The idea that the you know that the states can you know have jurisdiction over what's uh, separate but equal, mm-hmm. you know it doesn't trump the federal law, you know, and so they had to they literally so that tossed out Plessy versus Ferguson, and it upheld the decision that the Supreme Court made in favor of Brown and the Board of Education, thus aligned states to now operate in a way where kids, young people, black children had access to education 
in public schools just like white kids, not separate and not equal. Now, it was several couple of years later when Paulie just happened to go back to Howard University Law School and she was, you know, she wanted to get a copy of her uh, or the original one of her legal thesis. And, and then she said, oh, by the way, you owe me $10. Because <laughs> that was the bet. That was the bet. Mm-hmm. And you know what? He should have felt foolish because that little boy network that they had, you know, the girl boy network, did not allow her to be a part of the NAACP, did not, you know, it did not allow for them to even take up her case when she was denied admission to the University of North Carolina back in the, what, early, late 30s, I think 1938. The, the NAACP would not take up her case. And she even presented then that the likeliness is that, you know, the fact that I wasn't admitted, you know, you could argue that, you know, that stance because it's illegal because it's against the Constitution. You know, they weren't hearing that in the 30s. They, they certainly weren't hearing it from a person who appeared to be androgynous, a person who might, they may have considered to be a hellraiser or a maverick. You know, they just simply denounced the fact that this person could have any possibilities of being right on this. And, and she was. And that's the first case. That's, in fact, it was played out in the movie, um, and it's been written about even by the New Yorker on this particular instance when Polly Murray was not really given the accolades, but with, without Paulie Murray, where would we be today as it relates to education? Because it wasn't done by Thurgood, and it wasn't done by Professor Wood, uh, uh, Robinson. The, the framework to this was done by Paulie Murray. And, and, and of course, uh, Thurgood Marshall did say, Justice Marshall did say, that, uh, um, that, you know, she wrote the Bible to race, uh, race laws in America. And, and, and absolutely, they used, that, they used that book that she wrote on states of race and color. They used that to navigate through a lot of uh, federal, state, and uh, issues related to the law. But Pauli Murray was not given credit. Uh, and she is now getting a great deal of, of attention. And, I, and, and I, I'm glad that she is, but I also believe that that too, not being recognized or acknowledged because, number one, because she was a woman, number two, because she was a black woman, of course, number three, um, she identified as queer. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even have the term queer back then, but I, I think the word might have been in the category of homosexual. Because she had those intersections, the NAACP was not willing you know, to bring her aboard and say, you know what, we appreciate you for who you are and and thank you for providing this for us because we couldn't figure it out. And so where would we be today without a Paul Murray? And that's just on race. You know, that's, uh-huh. that's, that's just on education. If you move to the women's movement, it's a whole different conversation. 
you know, because there was a particular case that she uh, wrote the brief on her, and I think the lady's name was uh, Kenyon. Kenyon, I think that's what her name was. And in, in this particular brief um, that she wrote, I, I guess there was a case in Alabama, and and and, and a woman was had filed a case because she felt like her rights had been denied because she wasn't allowed to sit in on a, she wasn't allowed to be a jurist, you know, to be a jury of, of uh-huh. that, on a case. And, and so um, it was Polly Murray and her, um, and her colleague who took on the case. And I believe it was called White versus Cook. And in doing that, that is what set the foundation for uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to win the case at the Supreme Court, uh, and that in that case was was Reed versus Reed, because in, in, in the intent of you know states at that time was denying women the ability to be able to decide their own fate, you know what was in their best interest. So if a woman is denied the right to sit you know, um, uh, on a jury, is, 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 that was considered against uh, the Constitution. And with that being said, that is what opened up the door for Ruth Bader uh, to file her, her brief and, and win the case on the basis of sex. Wow. So once again, you know, Pauli Murray just knocked it out of the baseball field. And, and what was good about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she acknowledged uh, the contribution that um, Pauli made on in the work that she had done in the case uh, White versus Cook. Uh, you know, to to suggest that uh, women were being uh, discriminated against. So she acknowledged her on the brief um, when it was submitted to the Supreme Court. But by that time. Um, Pauli Murray was was pulling back from the whole legal system. Um, she was, you know, still struggling, uh, as well as you know her her partner, whom she had been with for for I think about a decade, um, was losing her fight. I think she had cancer and uh-huh. she, or a brain tumor, and she was losing her fight, um, and, and and eventually did pass away. And so you know, all of it, uh-huh. it just, it didn't, it, it meant a lot, but now it was, it was just for her, I guess, time to do something different. You know, it's, it's amazing, too, that she did all this work in, like, in law, and, you know, there weren't a whole bunch of buildings named after her. You didn't see her and all the, you know, other people got the notoriety, but she kept mm-hmm. doing the work. I mean, the, mm-hmm. I mean, she could have just sat back after all of her work, passing, making the, the this precedence where people could turn to about the these very important legal precedences, and sat back and you know talked somewhere and been done. But um, she went on and started a new career. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Reverend Doctor. Polly Murray. So we'll be right back.
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I am talking with Pamela Alexander about Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray. You know, I can recall, I want to say it was, it, was a, it was a while back, I was dating someone who wanted to become an Episcopalian priest. And I was like, why would you want to, you know, why would you want to do that? You know, they weren't very gay friendly. <laughs> I didn't see a lot of of us there and you know and then she was telling me some of the restrictions of what could and couldn't be and where you could go I'm going why would you want to do that and you know but she had that calling and she felt that with doing it within the Episcopalian church was the way to do it and then I also heard um she's now Kim Jackson who's also an Episcopalian priest, and she's a Georgia State Senator. Both of them, and, and, and talking then, now, listening to them, knew that they weren't the first. The first was Polly Murray. And she didn't do it when she was a young woman. She was in her early 60s. You were talking about what made her her leave the law and go into seminary. Yeah, um, the 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 relationship that she had with her partner was was very strong, and it it connected the way it did because of their faith, their Christian faith, and and so that was the bridge for them. And it and and, and I just believe based on what I've been able to read about Pauline, it, it opened her world up to just feeling and being more accepted, you know, um, um, by people um, that she surrounded herself with. Uh, certainly the connection that she had with God allowed her to know and believe that God loved her just the way she was, and that God, had, you know, had given her opportunities to make a difference, not just in other people's lives, you know. I often say, well, I just want to be able to make a difference. But it's, it's, it's profound when a person can make a difference, you know, for the whole country, you know. And so for her, uh going into uh, a seminary and, and learning about how to use tools in a different area to continue the same work that she had already been doing, okay? And the only way that that would happen is that she was just simply got the training. And so she allowed herself to open up to this, to this world, 
and um, and she did it by faith, and she allowed God to use her. And so um, once she, you know, finished and she was ordained as a priest, she lived the rest of her life um, preaching the gospel, uh, providing to the sick um, of all races, of all nationalities, to the elder elders in the community, to children. Um, she continued in many ways to support um, the rights of women by encouraging uh, women to become more empowered, first with themselves and with God, you know, and using themselves as a vessel to, to, to make change in their lives or in the lives of other people. But it, it was an art form for her because she was well-loved. That is what I have read about her. In fact, what I can tell you that there are sermons that she um, preaches um, through that are available through her own words um, and um, prayers that she uh, provides. Um, there was one particular uh, service that she did at a senior citizen's uh, facility. And, um, and I, I actually, I think that that was her first uh, sermon that she did. And, and she was just well-loved, you know. And um, so, with, you know, with her being able to just come full circle, and, and, and I think that's how I kind of interpreted or kind of summed up her life. She, she came full circle. Uh, she wasn't struggling um, anymore about who she was. Okay, she wasn't trying to get people to see her uh, for the talents and skills and the gifts that she could bring to the table. Um, she loved, and she knew what that meant. She was able to be loved, and she was able to give love, you know, um, through, uh, and, and, and she saw that relationship, her partner, as a blessing, and it was built on the foundation of faith, you know. Um, it, it was a small group of people that knew about her and her partner, and so she had the support from her community, okay, for that. And so, um, but yeah, and I, I just think that she found peace and, right. and to, to live your whole life and, and to, to, to find a space where you know you feel like you're, you're doing God's work, you know, um, it gave her a great deal of peace. Um, and so um, based on what I've been able to read, uh, right there as she knew that her health was declining, uh, she reached out to her family, and um, she just wanted to let folks know how she wanted things kind of summed up for herself. She wanted all of her records to go to the Slizinger Library um, at Harvard, which is where I believe they store uh, archive uh, uh -huh. women, women's, um, um, uh, you know, activism and, you know, just the history of women. And, and so that's what Harvard is known for. And so that's where her work is at. Um, I've been able to access some of her, her recordings, some of her, her writings, and even I was able to um, 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 
you know, actually read through some of her documents through this, through this library at, at Harvard. Um, and it's clear to me, you know, that, you know, she, and, 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 and of course I didn't even talk about her work that she did related to uh, unions. She, she had a friend, of, a black female friend, and she did a lot of work around, and this was early on in the you know, late 30s, early 40s, around um, women um, and the equal employment opportunity and getting women into the workforce and so, and, and along that way, um, working with women who wanted to organize in the workplace. I mean, so all of these documents are at that library and it is accessible, um, you know, just by the asking. And, but for me, I think that, you know, her, her, her last few years were the years that meant the most to her because she was doing really what I have read her to speak about God's work. This is what God, it, this was the whole plan for her to get to that, to that, to that space, that place. Well, you know, and I think that, you know, it wasn't like she continued. I mean, it seems like it was an extension. You know, like you said, it was like mm-hmm. the next level. And the fact that the Episcopalian Church named her a saint, and mm-hmm. on the anniversary of her death each year, they, they have a service to talk about her advocacy for freedom, for her work, her body of work. And, you know, if you want to think, you know, that really is what it's about. It's not like about miracles happening. She, by her work, performed miracles. Think of where we, our kids, education, women would be if not for the miracles while she uh, was alive that, Holly Murray did, I mean, and it wasn't like she had anybody bankrolling her. She just kept pushing and pushing and pushing throughout her life for equality and freedom. Yes, yes, yeah, and she really believed. Uh, in fact, she, and I think it was sometime in the 60s, the early part of the 60s, 60 to 61, she took a position in Ghana to kind of, uh, get their uh, law school going at, at one of the universities. And, of course, when she got there, there was nothing, no books. So, you know, it was just basically nothing there. And so she attempted to build um, the process. And I believe she even wrote the initial uh, 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 constitution uh, for Ghana. And, uh, but what made her not stay was the fact that um, it was a country that did not believe that women had rights. And, and, and there's a quote that, she, that I read that she made. She says, well, no matter where I go and no matter where I live, there's one thing I believe. All uh, human beings have rights. And, and, and as a woman, um, as a black woman, you know, I have rights. So this is an contrast to what I believe since she left. But she did kickstart things for them to get things started, to work toward, uh, you know, building their own um, constitution. She, she wrote the first document for her, and she was there about a little more than a year. So, yeah, she, I mean, she traveled all over, 
all over the world. She did. Um, there are places that I didn't even, or just recently I, I read about you know, a couple of places that she, countries that she actually lived in for a short period of time. And uh, But she came back to the U.S. because the one thing that I truly believe, Polly believed in, she believed in our democracy and she believed in our Constitution. She believed in that document. She did. And there are so many throughout our history that have not believed in that, that document. And you would think being the granddaughter of, of slaves and being the great-granddaughter of a slave owner, you know, so close to the history, the, you know, the slavery had, by the time she was born, it had only been, what, what, 35, 45 years since the end of slavery? And yet she grew up and believed in a system that wasn't designed. You know, they, 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 they attempted to make a system, rather, the system wasn't necessarily designed for us at that time. But she created markers, okay, that have stood the test of time. And it's to this day, like I say to young people today, well, you know, you may not want to go to college, but there are those who really fought hard for you to have the right to go. So it's, it's your choice. You know, you may not feel you need a high school education because Pauline finished high school at the age of 15, and even finishing, because she was super smart, even finishing at 15, she was not accepted into uh, a college uh, based on the kind of education that she completed in the South, which was uh, second rate. So she literally had to go back while she was at Hunter's College, at the Women's College in New York City, and do not only the collegiate aspect of the, de of the degree, but also remedial education because of the differences of how, you know, blacks were educated in the South. You see, it took her, I think, an extra year to complete her. Um, she should have completed it in two or three years, and she was there four years, I believe it was, only because she needed to get the remedial education in, in a from a public school that suggested they were separate but equal, you know. So, um, so yeah, you know, her travels have allowed for us to look at our society today. And, you know, and I, I'm just so happy that I've had this opportunity to have this conversation with you, Michelle. I really, really am. I mean, I could talk about Polly Murray all day long. And there's still things articles and you know I just printed out an article today once I get through talking with you here today I will probably get right into reading it it was an article that I think I missed um, I only read a part of it a portion of it from the New Yorker so I will probably spend some time this evening reading the rest of that article but there are books she has several books that she uh -huh. has written um, she, uh, she of course she was a poet so uh, her poetry, 
Uh, the book that she wrote uh, was Dark Testament. And then, of course, there is one book that was written by Professor Brittany Cooper, and she gets into the uh, respectability politics, which is what shunned uh, Pauli um, um, during the, um, I'd say, the early 50s, and, and, and being shunned by the NAACP, being shunned by the, the ACLU, being shunned by those groups that didn't necessarily see uh, black women as respectable enough to be a part of, you know, these these organizations. In other words, uh, clinging on to the idea that, uh, you know, black women were a risk when it came to activism, that somewhere along the line the institution or the systems would see that they are still clinging to um, uh, supports from, from I don't know, slavery or the benefits of, if there were such a thing as benefits uh-huh. from slavery. But respectability politics is really, this is a great book that was written by Professor Cooper. And it's, it's just, just basically getting into the bolts and nuts, of, nuts and bolts of uh, how black women are seen. Um, you know, as far as being intellectual um, and, and, and how, you know, we've been able to navigate all kinds of systems, you know, and, and, and use our um, uh, activism to make it better for everybody. You know, when I talk about queer, I'm not just talking about black queer. I'm talking about mm-hmm. all queer, you know, and, and so... Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to be a certain way, and this is where I believe, you know, like Dr. King and uh, Bayard Rustin and, and, you know, Randolph, they didn't see um, Polly as being respectable, you see. And, 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 and yet, the very person that created, you know, tools for these individuals to use to fight the good fights and, 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 and out of all of them, I truly believe that, um, that she, the foundation of our country um, and the ideas of, you know, what democracy, you know, it's, it's not a perfect situation. It's not perfect. And, and so we work to perfect it. And that could be, you know, an indefinite time period. And I, and I believe that that's what she believed in, just based on her writings and, and what she was able to accomplish. You know, if you look at the body of work of her life and how she lived it, it just sort of seems that it really hits here, particularly as you see more people who are gender nonconforming, people who are more active, who are challenging the laws and the interpretation as how it is, is this, this something that's in the air, this movement, particularly I could see Polly Murray being right in dead in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it just sort of seems like there are so many lessons to be learned from her life. If you were to, if someone were to say, well, where do I start? 
how do I, I, I get this knowledge, where would you point them to start to learn about Pauli Murray? Oh, okay, that's a good question. And when I dive in, I just dive in. I, you know, she has a book here that she wrote, Proud Shoes. I think that that would be a good start because this is really, uh, she wrote this book, and she writes, she's, this writing is really about her roots and her family and, and how, she, uh, how she was brought up, uh, you know, and how the generation before her, and the contrast, the difference, but it also sowed the seeds for who she became. So I would start with Proud Shoes, the, Amer- the story of, a, of an American family. I also, without a doubt, uh, The Firebrand and the First Lady. Um, mm. Patricia Bell Scott does a great job in, 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 you know, talking about the friendship that, you know, lasted more than a decade between a... A uh, high school student who was rejected by a college where it was clear they had race as a criteria, and she wrote, Pauli wrote to uh, the president, uh, President Roosevelt. He didn't respond, but Mrs. Uh, Roosevelt did. And so that is really what started their friendship. And it continued. For that fact, it was uh, uh, Mrs. Roosevelt who kind of paved the way for some of the opportunities that um, came into uh, Polly Murray's life. So uh, Patricia Bell Scott does a great job with that. And then, of course, you, 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 can't, you can't really get into uh, Polly Murray without understanding, without understanding her, her intuitiveness as it relates to her relating Jim Crow and Jane Crow. Because if you're mm. discriminated it's because of your race and you are a woman, okay, and, you know, it's, it's, it's one and the same, and she was not able to separate them. You know, and I can relate so much to this, you know. So Jane Crow is, a, is also a good book. And then, of course, uh, because I'm kind of a nerd a little bit, uh, I, I decided that, you know what, um, I needed to understand how she was able to um, capture all of this information about the laws that related to race and color in this country. She goes back to the beginning of our country, 1774, I think. And, she, and so this is the book that um, uh, Thurgood Marshall calls uh, the Bible, you know. And so she literally, literally codifies every single, I mean, Michigan is in here, uh, every single statute in the country um, and, and for every state up until the 1950s is in this book. So if, wow. if, if you think that race, is an illusion and that, you know, it was, you know, people aren't discriminated against. And, and the thing about it is that even though we know that discrimination is illegal, we also know that it still exists, you know. Mm-hmm. And so 
understanding the foundation to that, this is in contrast to what the daughters of the Confederacy did when they decided how people were going to be educated in this country. You know, that they would rewrite history, okay, and tell a a flat-out lie about what happened during slavery and that black folks weren't just happy Negroes or happy slaves living on the plantation, and that Uh through Jim Crow, you know, they basically decided that they would restrain the movement because really even today, and you spoke about Black Lives Matter, you know, Black Lives Matter is really about the movement of black people. It is. It's it's, it's the Uh same old song, you know, Uh and so... So yeah, I would uh, I would suggest that, but there is a plethora of articles, and and like I said, the New Yorker is one that recently did one. Um, I was disappointed in the movie about Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg because she didn't really. The, the, and, and ironically enough, the person that created the movie on RBG is the same person who created the documentary that has just been um, shown through the Sundance Film Festival, and I was able to see the documentary about Polly Murray, uh, and it was fantastic. I, I, want, I would like for, for, you know, the art industry or, you know, the entertainment industry to take it one step further and, and actually create a, create a full-length movie on uh, Pauli Murray like they did with uh, Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg. And heck, I even have the actress that they could select uh, for. Uh, uh, Halle Berry. Halle Berry would be uh, okay. perfect, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think she would be perfect for, uh, um, so I'll just put that out there in the universe. But <laughs> I am a huge fan of Pauli Murray. Um, I, I see now that how connected, you know, how I'm connected to this person just based on the, the 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 my race and my sex, okay, uh-huh. and my queerness. You know, I I am I'm truly uh, I have benefited for the challenges and the struggles and the hurt that she experienced, and it just makes me uh, want to do better. So when I can get an opportunity to to talk about Polly Murray, it's easy peasy for me because she made a difference. And in our lives, and she still makes a difference in my life. Well, Pamela, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk about Pauli Murray. And, you know, we stand on the shoulders of Pauli Murray, the people at the Center for Lesbian and Queer Women and Girls have a foundation to stand on because of you at this point in time. And, you know, we've had this election and doing that. What would Pamela Alexander, being part of this continuum, say to people that we must be aware of and continue to do? Ooh, okay. Let me see if I can answer that in just a few words. Um, I, I just think people need to continue to... Uh, work on getting this right. Polly Murray had, I mean, she had an impact on me, uh, and I'm still talking about her. So I believe that we, we need to continue to believe in our democracy. 
and we need to continue to believe in the Constitution, the founding fathers. They might have stumbled through it, but I, I truly believe that by the grace of God that uh, we can get this right. And I, I think that that for without Pauli Murray and all the folks that came before her, the, the, you know, the folks that were enslaved and, and, and they survived so Pauli could survive, my ancestors survived, so I could, I could be here today. We just need to continue to believe. We need to believe in our democracy and we need to believe in the Constitution. Well, Pamela, again, I want to thank you for your time this afternoon. I mean, I'm like you. The more, I mean, I'll tell you, the more that I read about Pauli Murray, it's like that sweater, how they say don't pull the thread, because each time I pull one thing and it will lead me to another and I want to read more and more and more, and then I think about it and I go back. I mean, she is that kind of of person who's still impacting lives now just through her reading and her writing. Uh, Pam, I know that I expect more great things coming from you. You may have retired from Ruth Ellis, but I know that you are a leader not only in the Metro Detroit community, but in the community. And so I know you're not done. <laughs> you know, I know you're not done. Uh, you know, I look forward to talking to you as you move into your next chapter. And again, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and I've really enjoyed uh, my time with you today. I want to thank our guest, Pamela E. Alexander, for helping us celebrate Black History Month with this conversation on trailblazing activist, lawyer, poet, author, and priest, the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.